speak tonight for the dignity of man and the destiny of democracy. May the turbulence of our age yield to the true time of peace, when men and nations shall share a life that honors the dignity of each, the brotherhood of all. I see a world of open borders, open trade, and most importantly, open mind. Hello and welcome to To the Republic, a show dedicated to history, civics, and U.S. institutions. I'm your host, Jake. And I'm Matt. In this episode, we're going to be talking about international relations. In our last few episodes that you and I have done, we've talked uh, about international institutions and a bit about U.S.-China relations on kind of a bilateral basis, but I think we're going to try to take it back to the basics with this one. Well, we kind of discussed the episode a little bit, but before we start, I wanted to um, talk about KXRW and kind of the mission that we're looking at doing, and we're just bringing a voice to the Vancouver and Clark County communities. Uh, We're also um, air on X-Ray, which reaches as far south as Eugene. Uh, so it's it's a great opportunity. Uh, if anybody's um, really interested in um, and donating, that would be great to keep us on the air. Uh, you can do so at kxrwvancouver.org. There's a donate button right in the top right-hand corner. And check out some of the other shows that are on KXRW. There's some great ones if you if you uh, want to get into local politics. Filibusters with John Oberg and Mike D'Alessandro have some great interviews. They just interviewed Governor Inslee and um, state, uh, state Senator um, Annette Cleveland. Uh, the Common Good with Joe Clemens is another great show. I love listening to them. Joe is a great guy. Um, and then if you like music, there are some great eclectic music shows on KXRW. The Mud Club with Ivan Ivan, Gordon Green's Music Planet, and The Vibe with Ryan Reed. So now that all, that's all been taken care of, uh, we can start the we can start the uh, the episode. So I think with uh, like we did with the international relations one, I kind of wanted to start with a quiz. And I think if you'll be my guinea pig, Matt, (laughs) I'll ask you these questions and we will uh, go from there. So what is, so question one, what is international relations theory? That is a tough one because it kind of is in the name, (laughs) but it's also, it's essentially providing a framework in which we view relations between states Mm -hmm. and how they, you know, interact with one another um, through the various frameworks um, of general IR theory you know mm-hmm. there's like we've you we've hinted to there's multiple schools of thought and it's kind of combining all of them to view how each state kind of interacts with each other within these kind of frameworks and these ideas yeah no i think that's that's a good answer it's it's interesting because international relations is kind of like a verb mm-hmm. right and like it's something that states do together yeah but then also but international relations theory tries to add a theoretical framework to that so yeah. it's like how can we go about studying international relations? And it's it's based in it's rooted in political science in, in the broader umbrella that is the political science doctrine and social and then social sciences more generally. And so it's just trying to analyze how states and by states we mean countries, nation states. Uh, but we just say states for for short. Otherwise, if you're saying countries or nation states all the time, that can get kind of repetitive. But we generally just we usually I, when we say states throughout this episode, just know that we mean countries. So yeah, that's uh, that's basically international relations theory uh and i know it's it's that's a it's a topic that is in in a it's a sub-discipline that i know is very near and dear to both of our hearts we took several uh classes on that in in college and i went on to 
uh, start a master's program in that in that discipline. So it's a, it's a lot of fun. It's and I think it really helps. I think this episode will really help add a good perspective to uh, our listeners in terms of how to view the international realm. Because I th- I, th- I think that when you have an understanding of the theoretical basis in terms of how interactions are wrote wrote about, and then also how to predict state behavior, mm-hmm. it, it's a it's a good tool to have you know, in the back of your mind. So question number two, the, uh, what, is, what are the three main schools of thought within mm-hmm. international relations? I do know this one. It is realism, liberalism, and constructivism. That is correct. And we'll get into those three throughout the episode. Yeah. So we'll just put a pin in that for now and move on to question number three. Mm-hmm. Which Enlightenment-era philosopher brought political theory to modern society? That is a good one. I always mess this up because I always think it's someone who came later. Uh, but I believe, and correct me with his first name, it is Thomas Hobbes. That is correct. Yes, Thomas Hobbes. Uh, we've talked about him a little bit on our Republican Party episode, but the Th- Thomas Hobbes was a early Enlightenment era philosopher. The, the Enlightenment period spanned from about the 1650s until the early 1800s, and w- basically what that did is it is it brought a lot of questions and thinking about society and power and politics. These really novel concepts, stuff that we kind of take for granted now and don't don't really, don't really think about, but. You know, a lot of his ideas, a lot of the, you know, others like Kant, um, Rousseau, who I'm thinking you were yeah, thinking of, who thinking, Rousseau yeah. wrote in the mid 1700s as a response to Hobbes' oh, theory, yeah. as a critique of Hobbes' theory. But um, yeah, Thomas Hobbes, a, a very, um, would be considered, if we were to put him in a camp, one of those schools of thought would definitely be a, well, it's, it's hard, because, and we'll discuss this. Is he a realist or is he a liberalist? Mm. Because he, when we talk about uh, autonomy and attunement, he's kind of falls in the middle of both. So number, question number four and the last one, uh, history of the Peloponnesian War was written by which great Greek philosopher? This is also a trick one. Because I always think it's Herodotus, but it's not Herodotus. That was the father of history. History, yeah. But it's actually Thucydides. Thucydides, correct. And I know we we talked briefly about Thucydides on our Chinese episode, um, on our uh, China-U.S. relations episode. Mm -hmm. And it's really important in terms of IR theory, both Hobbes and Thucydides give us the first real illustrations of political thought and how to think about man and the state and this thing we just we call like this con- concept that we call politics uh thucydides wrote about the so the peloponnesian war was the war between spartans and athens mm-hmm. and thucydides was writing it's more it's not really like a history per se he wasn't really documenting mm-hmm. events he was writing a dialogue in yeah. about his memories of the peloponnesian war yeah. so a lot of it is is really you know there's a lot of metaphor there's a lot yeah. of he definitely uh does a lot uses a lot of theatrics but mm-hmm. it's it's definitely an interesting it's an interesting read especially the million dollar dialogue yeah, no, which is what no. i want to bring up when we talk about realism and uh it, it that discussion between the the powerful athens and then milos which is this little tiny island nation um there he thucydides writes this this um fictional dialogue between these two powers is eight in this asymmetry relation asymmetrical relationship and it's really interesting. I really highly recommend reading it if anybody wants uh, wants to have something to read while they're while they're quarantined. I, that's definitely a, a a good one to read. So I think with that we'll move on to um, I think with any discussion in international relations and any, and really any sort of you know political science, you have to start with talking about um, 
Hobbesian theory of the state. Mm -hmm. And really in this concept of anarchy, Mm -hmm. we hear anarchy all the time. Like there's anarchists and all Mm -hmm. that kind of stuff. But really what is anarchy? Do you want to, you want to nail that down for us? Yeah. um, So for anarchy, the way I always thought about it when I was learning about was the absence of power, like a specific central power. Mm -hmm. Um, Essentially the way I look at it is when we're looking at IR theory, when we're looking at the world, we are, in some points in our history, um, lacking an absence of a one sole power. And there's, there's various other powers competing um, with each other to um, attain power. Mm-hmm. I, I know I'm kind of leaning into a bit of realism here, um, sure. but that's kind of what I'm thinking with, at least with, uh, you know, the biggest thing is just the the, the absence of power, like mm-hmm. the, or the, a central power. Yeah, no, I think that's a, that's, yeah, pretty much hits a nail on the head is that there's no, um, there's no governing body above mm. the individual, yeah. right? So every, every actor within the system has complete autonomy to do whatever they want. Mm. So Hobbes talks about how mm-hmm. that system with no centralized authority leads man's life in, a, in what he calls the natural state. Mm-hmm. And, and man's natural state of nature is selfish, brutish, and short mm-hmm. when under anarchy. And so he wrote his book called The Leviathan, mm-hmm around the time of the English Civil War. And what he was, what he was arguing was that um, without the, with the absence of centralized authority, everything breaks down into chaos. Yes. Because you're, you're talking about, and this is like getting into some of the realis- realism tenets here, but it's, you, can't trust the in, you can't trust other individuals because you don't know their intentions. You can't mm-hmm. know their intentions. Yeah. So you have to result to self-help strategies. You have mm-hmm. to result, you have to fall back onto what do I have to do to survive? Cause I can only trust myself mm-hmm. to survive. And so what Hobbes is, Hobbes was very much a monarchist during the English civil war. We don't mm-hmm. have to get into the history of that, but what he was really arguing for was, um, the, the, ma- the maintaining of the absolute monarchy in England, which mm-hmm. is absolute power. That means that the power mm-hmm. uh, in the monarchy is completely 100% given, to one central authority, yeah. which was the king. And so he would argue that demo- even democracy, which is better than complete anarchy, doesn't go far enough because mm-hmm. there's too many voices. When he, Hobbes would argue that with more voices, the, the more voices that you have, the more um, misconception there can be and there are more, more different interests competing with each other and therefore you'll, you're always going to have breakdowns because he, bra- he actually blamed the English Civil War on parliament and the splitting of power between the monarchy and parliament. That's getting a little in, little probably too in the weeds, but just know that Hobbes' escape from nature in that brutish life is that humans, individuals, subject themselves to the to the absolute power of a, of the Leviathan, the state, and then the state therefore has an obligation to protect the individual. Mm-hmm. But at that point, individuals have completely lost all of their individuals pretty much lose all of their autonomy when they enter into that contract, but they gain protection in that escape from that anarchy. Mm-hmm. Obviously that is probably a little more than what we would like to, right? Mm-hmm. We've been, we've grown up in a democracy. We grew up, we grew up in with, with, with a lot of personal freedoms. Um, but I think it's still understanding that the, the role of the, that the role of the state is important, mm-hmm. even if it's not to the level of Hobbes, mm-hmm. right? Okay, so with that, did you have any? Did you have anything else you wanted to add on Hobbes? Uh, no, that's pretty much. You pretty much summed it up. Um, I think the biggest thing is just kind of what I always took away from reading, specifically the Leviathan, is that um, the central power of the state um, always seems to be his main concern, and that specific. And I'm not saying like his case was an absolute monarchy, but just having that overarching 
power to kind of like you said, like quell the the many voices. It's his way to mitigate chaos and the chaotic effects of anarchy. Mm-hmm. And I think you see that when you, you talk about you know the, the the role of the state. I think this the state itself acts as kind of an arbiter in a coordinating position, coordinating position that help um, with cooperation between individuals. And I think you see a lot of times when there is no centralized authority, there's no leadership. Cooperation cooperation breaks down considerably because everybody has competing self-interest. When you have that that leader who has the power and the authority that they can then mobilize society in a in a larger way to move towards a single goal, and that's why Hobbes has a lot of interesting uh, things you can take from him in his book Leviathan, where you you start to really see the the theoretical importance of, of, of the state. So I think with that, um, we'll take a, we'll take a quick break, uh, on the, on the opposite side of, of the break. I think we're going to, we'll, we'll break into kind of the lesson plan for today, which is stating a question, uh, that I actually posed to you and we were, and then we'll start a discussion on the three main schools of thought and in international relations theory. So with that, uh, we're going to take a quick break. I'm Jake and I'm Matt and we'll be right back. Many thanks to our friends at Say Chow Catering, Columbia River Taproom and Eatery. Chef Peter has been cooking for over 20 years in the Vancouver area. Private events include wine tasting, wine dinners, appetizer parties, and cooking demos. Say Chow Taproom and Eatery boasts space for private events or drop-in for a quick refreshment and live music on Thursday and Friday evenings. Just a stone's throw away from the Columbia River, Say Chow Greater Vancouver's premier catering company. Conveniently located at 2501 Southeast Columbia Way, Suite 270 in Vancouver. More information available at www.say-chow.com. That's www.say-chow.com or directly at 360-210-5522. KXRW would like to thank our friends at New Vansterdam for supporting our programming. New Vansterdam is the premier cannabis market in the Vancouver area. They carry a variety of cannabis products ranging from pre-rolls, vape cartridges, and edibles to CBD topicals, oils, and tinctures. New Vansterdam is located in the Heights Shopping Center on the corner of Mill Plain and Andreessen Road. Open 8 a.m. to 11 p.m. 365 days a year. More information available at newvansterdam.com. That's newvansterdam.com. Welcome back to To the Republic. I'm Jake. And I'm Matt. In our last episode, we talked about international relations uh, theory, what it is, where it kind of came from, the theoretical basis of where um, interactions between actors in an anarchic environment started. And it started with Thomas Hobbes and as far back as the uh, 16, mid-1600s. In this, uh, in this segment, we're going to really delve deep into the three main schools of thought uh, within international relations theory, which are realism, liberalism, and constructivism. Uh, so I think what we will start with is posing a question that I, that I wrote, and we're going to try to answer it from the three main schools of thought. And I think that what, what this will do is it will really allow um, our listeners to kind of get a little bit firmer grasp on the distinction between and importance of the distinction between these, these schools of thought and how these schools of thought could ultimately affect policy, uh, for us, you know, foreign policy for us, foreign policy. And then also just the, the, the mapping and the shaping of the international community that we see today with international organizations. So that, that question is Helmut Kohl, the former chancellor of West Germany said in 1983, Peace must be more than the absence of war. 
how would someone from each of, of the three main schools of thought in international relations explain this quote? So I think we can, I think with that, what we should probably, do you want to talk now about, about realism? Yeah, I think that'd okay. be a good, um, a good start for us is to start with realism. Okay. Did you want to take that? Yeah, sure. Perfect. Um, so with realism, uh, realism really breaks down to its main focus is on power and, mm-hmm. and states is interaction with power. What we kind of touched on um, briefly with Hobbes is the nature of power and anarchy. There is a lot of uncertainty in states' interactions with each other because we don't know other states' intents. Um, so we don't know what's going on in their heads. And so we're kind of playing this 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 dance with other states um, trying to predict um, their interaction in this anarchic environment that we call the world. Uh, kind of a, almost, I don't know if you say like a separate off branch of realism. With I don't know if we want to talk too much about neo uh, realism. We probably should. I mean, yeah. um, some of the more modern uh, mm-hmm. realists who are yeah. talking about international relations theory specifically are mm-hmm. going to be neo realists. Yeah. The difference between realism and, and um, neo realism really is looking at states as an extension of individuals yeah and i also think it's important that we also mention about humans interactions with the environment of anarchy Mm -hmm. because i know you um mentioned to me previously off the air there is no way to escape the anarchy that surrounds us so it's basically humans interests to be um selfish um to put their interests first Mm -hmm. um and to basically um act from within um rather than um relying on others to meet their needs yeah i think you're you're definitely hitting on a very key component of realism, mm-hmm. and that is um, that anarchy is inescapable, yeah. especially at the international yeah. realm. Where we'll get into liberalism in a little bit, but liberalism offers uh, a counter to that. And basically, what they're basically what they're arguing is that anarchy in itself, this environment where every actor has rel- has relative rel- relatively amount the same amount of power, but um, there's no there's no centralized authority, which is what we talked about in the last segment. Within that environment, that environment has a causal effect on behavior. So it's a deterministic view on behavior that you are always going to have to resort to your to yourself. If the environment is forcing you because you can't trust other people and you can't know their interests. You're going to result to self help logic and zero and view every interaction as zero sum. Mm-hmm. So that means every interaction that I'm going to have with you, I'm going to view it through the lens of how can I maximize what I feel I need to, to continue to survive in the system. And classical realists looked at that, that dynamic between individuals and, and anarchy uh, at the individual level, whereas neorealists look at, try to attribute those, that same behavior that you see in individuals in that environment and then attribute it to the international system. Because mm-hmm. anarchy doesn't really exist that much between individuals anymore with the creation of the nation state. Mm-hmm. So r- real true anarchy and even liberal, even people with a, within the liberal doctrine will assume the same thing, that the international, international realm, which is in political science is called the structural level of analysis. So it, it the, the lo- looking at interactions between states above the state, above, above mm-hmm. the state level is, is anarchic because there is no centralized authority. States are sovereign. Mm-hmm. Um, that means there's no, there's really no power, no legitimated authority that can tell a state what to do. Mm-hmm. And that makes international relations very, very difficult because 
everybody has their own interests. Everybody has their own principles, their values, and the things that they're going to look out. And they're going to look out for themselves. And there's nobody that can tell them without the the raw use of power and force from a more powerful state to tell any other state what they're going to do. Mm-hmm. Um, there's bouts of cooperation, but even a realist would say that cooperation is generally only um, sh- is short-lived because it's only in the state's interest that they have that cooperation. Mm-hmm. And once the, those interests diverge, that cooperation breaks down, mm-hmm. um, which makes trying to cooperate on a long-run scale very, very difficult. Um, and realists are going to maintain that this is, you know, this is, this is the system. There's no escaping it. Mm-hmm. Um, some of the classical realists are going to be, you know, Thucydides in that we talk about the Melian dialogue. Did you want to get into the Melian dialogue at all? Yes, because it has one of the greatest lines of all time. <laughs> okay. What was that? Uh, so I th- it's specifically between Athens and Milos. Mm-hmm. Again, Athens being the dominant power. Um, and Milos being a much more minor power. Milos had been relatively unaligned. I know they were, I think from what I remember, they were technically more aligned with Sparta, but they really were kind of playing it. They were pretty much riding the fence on this one. They were trying to stay out of it as as best Mm -hmm. they could. Um, But uh, Athens came and, you know, was basically like either join us or, you know, die. And the Melians were like, we really have no part in this. We're not a major power we'd like to stay out of this please and the mm-hmm. Athens said and I will forever remember this line because I always feel like it belongs in Star Wars <laughs> the strong do what they can the weak suffer what they must mm-hmm. and that is if not the most Empire Strikes Back line I've ever heard in my <laughs> life but it, it, it really does also summarize the I think the core tenets of realism mm-hmm. is that strong states act strongly weak states are subservient to the stronger states. Mm-hmm. In that, um, in in also in that is this uh, real deterministic view of behavior. Mm. Me, uh, Athens saw themselves as we are the we are the dominant power. This is what we do. Yeah, we conquer. Yeah, we we go out and because we're we view maximizing power mm-hmm. as conquering other people mm-hmm. as central to our survival. Mm-hmm. So that's what we have. That's what we have to do to survive within the system mm-hmm. is we have to conquer all these lands. So that way there's no one who can rival us and we can, mm-hmm. our way of life, our, our country, our state mm-hmm. continues to, um, it can continue to survive mm-hmm. through generations. So that's, um, that gets us into a little bit of a, of a, split within the uh, the broader framework of realism which is power maximization versus uh secu- which versus um security maximization mm-hmm. and you would think that those could be synonyms but they're they're not there is a there's a kind of a a a, a, a good different a good mm-hmm. point of difference there in john j Mearshammer, who is a power maximize maximizing uh realist who would would take what thucydides said and said yes like you, in order to survive, you have to be the most dominant power. You have to go out and conquer, because that is the only way that you can. You, that is the only way that you can, for sure, say that you're going to survive is by being the, the biggest kid on the block with the biggest with the biggest stick, mm-hmm. and making sure that you are more powerful than any. Than, so that any conglomerate of states or any other any other state by itself cannot rival you and mm-hmm. therefore they're not going to attack you because they know it's futile they're not going to win mm-hmm. that's why milos didn't attack athens they were trying to call to athens's higher power 
you know, higher ideals and saying, we're nothing to you. But Athens responded with, you're weak, you must suffer what you must. Yeah. And because in that system and under, under the realist ideology, that is, that's how the, the system works. Mm-hmm. And so contrastly to Mearsham's power maximization theory, you have what Kenneth Waltz would call, um, uh, balance, well, balance of power theory, but then it's also uh, security maximization. Mm-hmm. That by pursuing just absolute power, what you'd actually do is make yourself less secure. What Kenneth Waltz has also called defensive realism would argue that you want to build up your your country's defenses, your state's defenses enough to warrant to ward off any sort of a, any sort of outside influence or, or possibility of attack. But what you don't want to do is by going out and, and projecting that power, what you do is you may, even if you are doing it, your interest there is just only to build you up your own security so nobody comes and attacks you. You don't want to then go conquer anybody. What you do is because no one can know your interests, mm-hmm. they're going to start building up themselves. And that's when you get into that. They start, start building up their own capabilities. Mm-hmm. And you get into what they call the security dilemma, which mm-hmm. is I can't trust because I can't trust your intentions. I see you building all of these missiles over here. I don't know what you're going to use those missiles for. All I know is that they can be used against me. So I'm going to start building up my missile systems. And the next thing you know, you have these arm races and then you get a flashpoint like in world war one mm-hmm. and you end up in a, in a, in a catastrophic war. Mm-hmm. So that is, uh, that would be because Kenneth Waltz in his, in his book, um, the prospects of war neorealist theory talks about world war uses world war one as, as an example. So I think with that, what we'll do now is to move on to, uh, liberalism. Mm. And did you want to discuss liberalism at all? Yeah, for me, liberalism is a direct response to realism. Mm-hmm. Um, specifically, it's that there are the same assumptions, like we mentioned, about um, states' behaviors in the um, anarchic system that we find ourselves in. Mm-hmm. Um, however, they believe there is a way to escape, essentially, the madness, the the dog eat dog world of um, of realism. And that is through through several ways. I mean, there's um, structural liberalism mm-hmm. where we view um, that states through um, structures like, for example, the UN, mm-hmm. um, EU, world. You know, um, these these multilateral um, organizations. These can, in a way, intertwine the world in a way that it makes the costs of of going to war too great to actually want to go through with it. Oh, I love that you bring that up because mm. yeah, it's, it's um, understanding that states have their own interests and mm. in making war, war so much more costly than cooperation. Yeah. It becomes the interests of the state to cooperate. Yes. Yeah. So that's, um, I think that's really good that you pointed that out. So what else did you take from liberalism? One of my big points is that just that institutions remove um, the uncertainty of the anarchic system overall mm-hmm. that that realists really um, uh, depend upon for their theory. Sure. Um, essentially, it's trying to mitigate the effects of anarchy. Mm-hmm. So, for example, I mentioned the EU. It's yeah. one of my favorite organizations to use when we're talking about liberalism because Europe has been known to have a few wars here and there. A few. <laughs> um, <laughs> one or two. One or two. But um, when you have things like the EU where there's a lot of states cooperating on trade, mm-hmm. on um, immigration, on um, you know various aspects of international relations and international engagement. Sure, um, you see that. Why would France declare war on Spain? 
when they have high levels of trade, they have um, it, it would be against their own interest if to have some expansionary war mm-hmm. or some you know war of aggression because in the end they profit from this agreement, from okay. this arrangement, from the structure of the EU yeah. more than they would if they went to war yeah. over some resource or some other um, for, for some de facto power issue. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I th- oh, gosh, you 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 hit that right <laughs> on the head with that. That's that's perfectly put, Matt. To kind of I guess build off of what you were saying is that there's a great article out there. It's one of my favorites I ever read in school, and it's by um, by an international relations theorist named uh, Barbara Corominos. Um, she wrote the article titled "The Rational Design of International Institutions." In this really seminal piece of that is like structural liberalism, like put on the paper. What she attempts to do is where are the areas that states um, that prohibit states from cooperating over a long period of time mm-hmm. and what can what can those institutions do what kind of mechanisms can you put in these institutions that help alleviate the fears that states have under anarchy mm-hmm. because liberalism does assume that behavior under anarchy is determined is is deterministic um, through what kind of mechanisms and institutional arrangements can you put in that help alleviate those concerns over not knowing interests over zero sum logic um, mm. which is zero sum logic is that any time that uh, if if you're gaining mm. if, if if you're gaining at all it means that in my mind I'm not gaining mm. whereas that's that's not inherently true because we could both be we could both be making gains we could both be not losing but because I'm worried about relative gains mm-hmm. that if you're if you're doing better relative to me that means I'm losing mm. but Obviously, that's we know that to not be true because take China and the United States for example, the United States and China through their trade agreements have both benefited. Mm-hmm. They have their GDPs have both have both risen, mm-hmm. but because China's GDP has risen at a faster pace than the United States, someone with a zero sum logic operating under zero sum logic would view that the United States is actually declining relative to China when mm-hmm. they're not. Mm-hmm. We're both both boats are rising. At yeah. The, are you saying that the tide lifts all boats? <laughs> I don't know. Am I? I, I is this is this a, is this a metaphor for capitalism? Maybe. Maybe. Um, so in so a couple of those things that uh, Barbara Corminos brings up is uh, the most important one, in my opinion, is leadership. Having mm-hmm. that um, centralized authority within yeah. the institution that can um, alleviate some of those those issues. Uh, fairness, representation, punishment, and reward mechanisms, I think, are also really mm-hmm. key because. If a state wants to defect, because that's one of the biggest things is you don't want to have that sucker's payoff. Yeah. Is if I enter in a co- in a cooperation with you and then you turn around and screw me over, I'm I'm left holding I'm left holding the bag. Yeah. In an, in an anarchy, I don't have any way to punish you for that yeah. if I don't have the power to do so. Yeah. So what an inst- institutional arrangements will try to do yeah. is saying like, okay, we have this more centralized authority, and wherever that comes, whether that's like a single state or if that's a conglomerate of states that um, meet almost like a, a, a congress would, uh, whether it's um, like the UN General Assembly, for instance, yeah. can then say that we're going to punish state X because they didn't comply with the rules that they agreed upon when they became members of this institution. And so what they're trying, basically what they're trying to do with um, liberalism is trying to do is take the, the things that we know work at the state level, democracy representation, and take those, those values and those principles and and attribute them to the international realm, which is defined by anarchy Mm. by bringing some sort of governance to this system. Mm. 
I think that does a pretty good job of, yeah. of, of explaining it. Yeah, um, so let's move on to the last one. Um, I well, think, I think yeah. before we do that, we're going to we're, we're up against a break here. So we'll yeah. talk about constructivism, oh, yeah, yeah. which is its own <laughs> weird yeah. kind of amalgamation of, of thoughts. It's very different than liberalism mm-hmm. and, and realism. So I think with that, we'll, we'll take a quick break. Uh, when we come back, uh, we'll talk about uh, the school of thought of constructivism, mm-hmm. which is a much more modern international relations school yeah. of thought. It, it, it draws on ideas, but we'll get into that on the other side of the break. And then we'll, I think we'll talk about, uh, we'll just have a, just a free-flowing discussion about Good how point, each yeah. one of these schools, uh, someone within each of these three schools of thought would try to answer that question that we posed mm-hmm. uh, earlier in this segment. Mm-hmm. So uh, you've been listening to To the Republic. I'm Jake. And I'm Matt. And we'll be right back. KXRW Community Radio wants to thank our friends and sponsors at Boomerang Therapy Works, where exercise is medicine. At Boomerang, they offer a variety of one-on-one treatment options that can be tailored to your health and wellness. They offer physical therapy, massage therapy, personal trainers, exercise programs, group classes, and specialize in customized Parkinson's treatments. Located in downtown Vancouver, more info available at boomerangtherapyworks.com, where exercise is medicine. Community radio like this is brought to you by the generous support by our founding sponsors at ADCO Commercial Printing and Graphics, Clark County's local print shop since 1993. ADCO features stationery, posters, flyers, tickets, business cards, stickers, catalogs, and much more. Print on anything and mail anywhere. Learn more at adco1.com. That's A-D-C-O, the number one, dot com. Why settle for fast food when you can have fresh food? At 6th Avenue Bistro, the menu emphasizes local ingredients and authentic preparations that highlight the flavors, textures, and colors of the season. More information available about their menu, happy hour, and catering services at 6thAvenueBistro.com. Welcome back to To the Republic. I'm Jake. And I'm Matt. In our last segment, we talked about the um, two older schools of thought within international relations theory, which to restate international relations theory is a theoretical concept on how um, countries interact with each other and tries to um, make models and predict uh, and analyze that behavior through a quantitative way, which is try to break down that into numbers. And it, it's... Uh, it, it's a, it's a really fascinating school of thought, and it's one that you and I both really like, and that's why we kind of decided to do this episode. Um, so the, the two uh, schools of thought that we talked about were realism and liberalism. And before we started talking about that, though, I want to restate the question. So if you're tuning in now, you, you have somewhat of an idea of what we're talking about. Um, and the, the question is, is um, I'll just restate it here, is Helmut Kohl, the former chancellor of West Germany, said in 1983... Peace must be more than the absence of war. How would someone from each of the three main schools of thought in international relations explain this quote? So like I said, we talked about uh, realism and liberalism on the other side of the break. And now I think we're going to talk about the third in kind of the the stepchild of, of international relations theory, which is constructivism. Yeah. Uh, did you want to break that down? Yeah. My biggest take from constructivism is the world is what you make of it and and we more of how our ideas shape um the world around us Mm -hmm. so like for example i always think of it not really in the terms of states but my best way to think of it is looking at like the dollar um specifically a dollar is a piece of paper 
but we give it worth. Mm-hmm. We agree that a dollar is worth a dollar. And then I try to pl- apply it more to the macro with the United States. Sure. We all agree that we live in a country called the United States. We have ideas about what that country means to us. You can mm-hmm. look at it like the Constitution or, you know, um, the Bill of Rights or and, and these ideas that we all hold is what we essentially turn into the United States. Sure. And our actions reflect our understanding and our ideas of that nation. Yeah. So then if you want to even apply to a more macro level, you can look at like... Um, how states interact with each other is based on maybe our ideas of what our own intents are and our own purpose. We are reflect like states are almost in a way reflections of what we view each other as. Like our ideas shape our states' actions in a way. Sure. Okay. Yeah. yeah. That's, I've, that's how I've always looked at. Yeah. I, th- I think you're. I, I once again, I think you're you're right on with with that. Um, that ideas play mm-hmm. a major role mm-hmm. in the shaping of behavior, and that is stands in stark contrast to liberalism and realism, which mm-hmm. argue that anarchy, which is the absence of a centralized power, that actors that that environment has a causal effect that has a deterministic effect on behavior that people within that anarchic system are going to behave in a certain way because of the environmental realities around them. Whereas a constructivist would come back and argue, no, that's not deterministic because we're all blank slates. Mm-hmm. So what what ultimately ends up influencing behavior is a long period of uh, a long process of signaling of messaging, signaling and interpreting that over time, if you, you and I interacting with each other, I see how you react to me saying something or me doing something, mm-hmm. and there, therefore, I can under, I can then predict what you're going to do based off of what I've done. Mm-hmm. And over time, that that that's self that's self reinforcing. Yeah. And that in itself doesn't. It's not saying that there is any sort of way or any, any sort of particular way we're going to act. We act because of past experiences. Yeah. And in and, and, and then expectations off of those past experiences. So. Because we see anarchy as creating a a life of you know that short, uh, brutish and selfish, it's that way because that's how humans have acted towards each other. So therefore, that's what we that's what we anticipate happening. So then we act off of that anticipation. Mm-hmm. So it's it's kind of a it is a fine line here. But they're saying basically saying is that we're not stuck in anarchy. We can escape anarchy. And what Alexander Went, who's kind of like the the father of constructivist thought in international relations wrote in his some real seminal piece uh, called anarchy is what states make of it. The social construction of power politics. Mm-hmm. And that is we are who we are and how we see ourselves, that coat we put on ourselves really influences our identity. And then we act in that we act to fill that role. So like there's this idea of you're American. Mm-hmm. So how do Americans act? So then you change your behavior to act as you think as society thinks mm. you should act as an American. Mm. Like, do you, like, do you act differently when you put on a suit versus when you're wearing casual clothing? I never wear suits. You never wear suits. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So I mean, if no. you're dressed up and you go yeah. out nice, like there's like, there's a, there's almost like this social pressure that you need to act in a certain way yeah. versus when you're wearing just casual clothes out and about that there's, um, there isn't that pressure to act in a certain way. So it it's kind of taking though that idea in saying, how does that affect 
state relations. So if, if you're the dominant power in the system, right, and this is kind of gets back into Thucydides a little bit, is where does can constructive, can constructivism situate itself a little bit in more, um, more established mm-hmm. realist thought or liberalist thought and saying that, if you're the dominant power, you're going to act in it as a dom- you're going to act in a certain way because you think that that is how a dominant power is supposed to act. If you're America, you're the sole world hegemon. You're going you're going to or if you're a democracy, right? I think this is more of this is a better analogy is that if you're a democracy and you uphold these ideas of self-determination and free institutions and representation um, equal rights for all is that that's how you're going to project yourself on the international stage is you're going to be like, we're, we're going to uphold this is because this is who we are. Mm-hmm. This is how we're going to act because this is the coat we put our, we put on ourselves mm-hmm. And over time that that has a, you know, it has this profound effect on behavior. So was there anything, anything else that you would want to add mm-hmm. about constructivism? No, that pretty much sums it up. I think. Okay, sure. Um, like I said, uh, Alexander went, uh, you can find the free PDF online. I just Googled it. Um, it's called, Anarchies, what states make of it, the social construction of power politics. I'd recommend looking up all of those, the Barbara Corminos article, um, the Kenneth Waltz article. Those are all very seminal pieces. They're they're dense reads, but they're they're good reads. Uh, so I think now that we've kind of broken down the three main schools of thought, I think we'll just have an open discussion about how each school of thought would answer that question. All right, Matt. So how would a realist explain how peace must be more than the absence of war? Yeah, I think um, for realism, like we talked, the big point is power. What is the balance of power after a war? Mm -hmm. Usually the balance of power is, you know, on the side of the victor. And we're looking at um, what kind of world we're in. Is it a bipolar world where... um, power is balanced between two great powers is it a multipolar war uh, world where there's multiple powers vying for um, control or is it a unipolar world mm. and i think we have to look at it from a a perspective of where is power placed at the sure. time of peace um for example following world war ii we saw a really um I, th- I think a brief period of um monopolarity immediately followed by a bipolar world with the ussr and the usa mm-hmm. um and uh, the problem was neither one could get the advantage over the other. And so, and, and both were, at, and you could also argue that there was a period of nuclear deterrence as well. Yeah, so that, there definitely was. Th- that also puts up, I think if we're just trying to not get too much in the weeds, the important thing to take from what a realist I think would look at is the balance of power is in a way where someone can get the advantage over the other. Mm-hmm. And so they cannot like, for example, um, attack the other. Yeah. So, for example, like um, with the Melian dialogue, mm-hmm. Milos wasn't going to attack Athens. No, there was no way. No, but that also didn't prevent war. No, I mean Athens attacked Milos. Mm-hmm. In this case, the cost of war for a minor power to attack. Let's look at the USA. Sure. Even if it's China, mm-hmm. the closest rival, is far too great for there to be any um, benefit to, or change in the power complex sure. where China comes out on top. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think a realist would say the absence of of war or the absence of war is really dictated by the balance of power sure. and, and where power lies in the international system. Mm-hmm. I think you're, I think you're right on with that. I think realists, there's like anything, there's not going to be one answer out of the school of thought no. of realism, but I think that there's a couple dominant ones. And I think when you talk about, it's going to be structural, mm-hmm. right? There needs to be some there within the 
the current balance of power, there needs to be something that keeps states from fighting amongst each other. Mm -hmm. And whether that is a Leviathan type mm -hmm. state where you have a, like you were talking about a unipolar world, that means there's one power yeah, that no other power, power in yeah. itself can rival, um, that can dominate everything, be that one voice mm -hmm. in keeping everybody else in line. Where, or you have what you call a balance of power, which is because the, in using the United States and the USSR as the example, which I think you rightly did, is that they could each, each of those dominant powers acted with like, almost acted like a Leviathan in themselves within their own spheres of influence. Mm -hmm. So Russia could control the, the, the behavior of the states within its sphere of influence and the United States could do that within its own sphere of influence. And I think you see that with um, the Suez Canal incident in the mm -hmm. 1950s where uh, Eng uh, England and France were going, because once um, uh, Egypt had nationalized the Suez Canal and closed mm -hmm. it off to transport, that directly hurt trade for, for European powers. Mm -hmm. And France and, and England went to go, went to invade Egypt, but Egypt was aligned with Russia mm -hmm. and fearing that this could turn into a hot war, which would force the United States and Russia to go to war over something that weaker states at the time were, were, were doing, told England and France, back off. England and France listened. If, if there's, there, that is such an indication of the relative balance of power and the, rel and the and power dynamics within the system that ultimately these proud nations of France, these former empires mm -hmm. listen to the new toughest kid on the block and yeah. change their behavior. Yeah. So I think that that in itself shows how balance of power can have a direct effect on curbing mm -hmm. violence. Mm -hmm. If it's done in the, you know, obviously if it's done in the right way and the right conditions are met and all the right, you have this, you have the right kind of power, mm -hmm. um, but there's a lot that plays into it. So it's either that Leviathan or that balance of power, yeah. I think, is how uh, how different realists would, would go about explaining that. Yeah. So we'll move on to um, liberalism and yeah. how would liberalism, how would somebody in the real in the liberalist school of thought explain this? Yeah, this I think concept? this one um, will also be more applicable to the period falling directly after World War II. I think it's they would see it as structures and institutions um, really mitigate the prospect of war mm -hmm. because we become so entangled and engaged in trade and um, diplomacy and um, just mutual cooperation yeah. that the costs of going to war are just too high. Mm -hmm. um, for example, let's just say it, I always like to return to the EU because it's one of my favorites. It's, it's, it's one of the more applicable um, scenarios. Uh, for example, let's just say there was a mighty war between Denmark and Estonia, the greatest powers of Europe. <laughs> and um, let's just say they were in a, let's just say they were in a hostile environment, mm -hmm. um, but they're both EU members. They, um, they're involved in trade. They're mm -hmm. involved in, uh, they have immigration policies that affect each other. Um, and Denmark just really wants to stick it to Estonia. Well, War just isn't really a viable option because they have profitable trade deals. Um, they are getting scholars from Estonia to come work in their IT projects. Mm -hmm. um, they are uh, Denmark is shipping over lots of pork because they are the number one pig producer in Europe. No joke, I know that. It's just a random. <laughs> well, fact. you're Danish. I am Danish, but um, they. Uh, it, it just comes to the point where. In the end, war just becomes too costly. It does, and and mutual cooperation wins the day because you, both parties, even when they're angry with each other, still prosper when cooperating. Mm -hmm. So it just it promotes this idea of mutual cooperation, and so it's it's it's, it's a structural theory. Mm -hmm. in, in my mind, I tend to lean towards more of a, a structural liberal yeah. um, idea idea of how um, 
the absence of war isn't just or the uh, the presence of peace isn't just the absence mm-hmm. of war it's the presence of cooperation yeah institutional um structures that essentially guide that mitigate anarchy by guiding states towards specific answers to resolve their problems mm-hmm. and I, I think that there's there's a matrix i had in my notes that i had sent you and it's mm-hmm. this four by four matrix yeah. and i think that what this question is getting at is that we can't just assume that peace, we want to make peace lasting and Mm -hmm. we just can't define peace as the periods between different, different conflicts. And so what, what, what has to be present to keep the next conflict from happening? And I think where liberalism would fall on this four by four matrix where on the top you have autonomy and attunement, and then on the sides you have impermeable and permeable. So that how responsive are states to outside influences? Mm-hmm. Like a realist would fall at the intersection of autonomy and, and impermeable. So mm-hmm. that these hard billiard balls are these, there's these created nation states that just bash against each other. And there's not mm-hmm. really a lot of, not a lot of melding there. Mm-hmm. Liberalism, I think, would fall where where you would have attunement and impermeable, that you have these hard boundary nation states that are going to do the things that they want to do within their boundaries, but they have attu- they attune themselves to a some sort of higher a higher you know higher power or mm-hmm. some sort of some sort of higher you know, some institution that can then dic- that dictates their, their behavior a little bit and they've attuned themselves to going to going along to get along mm-hmm. because they understand what the they understand that they benefit more when they cooperate mm-hmm. so I, I don't that probably gets a little confusing um, and then you have permeable in autonomy which would be constructivism would be yeah. the intersection of autonomy and permeable yeah um, where actors are more likely to more likely to change versus being more rigid like a like a like a hard billiard ball which would be impermeable mm. anyway um so I, yeah i think you you hit the 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 head right there hit it on the head with with the with the creation of institutions that promote cooperation just to keep re- reinforcing that because uh it's convincing over eventually convincing states that they can benefit sacrificing short-run gains for long-term stability because in the long run, we're all going to be better off when we cooperate. Yeah. And we can we don't have to get into prisoner's dilemma or tragedy of the commons to really talk about that. But um, there's, there's a lot of theoretical concepts and ideas mm-hmm. that reinforce this, this more liberalist idea of, yeah. uh, of school of thought. Anyway, Absolutely. so that's me rambling a little bit. <laughs> so let's get on to constructivism. How would a constructivist answer this yeah, question? Yeah, I think this is a little bit of the trickier of the three, but I think the biggest thing I would think a constructivist would argue is um, the absence of, or the presence of peace being more than the absence of war is that we agree that we all have an understanding that the, the presence of peace is what we strive to attain mm-hmm. and that the um, absence of war is also an ideal we strive for. Mm-hmm. And that um, I think we then become, we develop a shared understanding that peace is the ultimate goal. Yeah. Peace is what we strive for. And then yes. that, then states reflect these ideals mm-hmm. is kind of what I'd get into. Um, and I know you probably would have to, um, you, you wanted to add um, um, uh, that note you made um, that, uh, it's ideas leading to action in a way, or mm-hmm. ideas leading to when in, yeah, yeah. ideas become interests. Yeah, interests. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. So constructivism, like like you were talking about, with interests, ideas becoming the interests of 
actors within the system. And so that if, if a, what a constructivist would say is that ideals of peace, ideals of, of co-prosperity in the um, democracy institutions, the stuff that help um, alleviate those tensions mm-hmm. amongst compete, states with competing interests is that if you have these states that see themselves as peaceful, they're going to act peaceful. Mm-hmm. And I think that that stands in stark contrast and coming back to that Melian dialogue, that is if Athens had saw themselves as a peaceful nation versus a conquering nation, mm-hmm. maybe they would have viewed the power dynamic between them and Milos differently. Mm-hmm. So a, a, a constructivist would say is that we want to, we want to promote through all sorts of different avenues, whether it's through institutions, whether it's through balance of power, um, whether is that you try to, you put these ideas out there and hopefully over time, these ideas reinforce these, these, these um, concepts of, of, of peaceful negotiation, stuff like that. So mm-hmm. um, I think a really good piece of literature really quick to talk about yeah. when it comes to constructivism would be um, a book called Just and Unjust Wars. Mm-hmm. And it's by an author called Michael, his name is Michael Walzer. And what he talks about in, in this book is that uh, one of the classic lines from this is that through the justifications of war, we gain moral knowledge. Mm-hmm. So that way, I mean, so that in itself shows that there is something a little bit more that we understand that there's this intersubjectivity when it comes to um, in how these ideas are at play and how they in influence our behavior and how they influence how we see the world is that you never see somebody just especially in the modern world you never see somebody like athens that just openly say we're the dominant power our job is to conquer all Mm -hmm. usually anytime you see some some actor use aggression towards another whether it's a state using a you know in this instance a, a state um inflicting violence on another there's always there's all these justifications used like we had to you know, we had to protect the citizens from its government. We had to do all of these different things. Like, what was you know, what were the justifications for Afghanistan? What were the yeah. justifications for Iraq? There's always like these justifications that we had to do it right. We had to do it because it was the right thing to do. Mm-hmm. And instead of just saying, well, it was just because we had interests at at stake. We wanted oil, or we wanted we yeah. wanted this. There was like there was these the justifications call like paid homage to a even if it wasn't that way it was just because we the leaders felt like they had to justify it mm-hmm. in a rational way in a calling to these calling to these higher these higher ideals to justify their their use of violence shows what kind shows how ideas are at play mm-hmm. in the international system mm-hmm. so i think it, it's a really it's a, that's a really interesting read i think something to think about and i think it's kind of a good place to kind of wrap up w- with where we're at mm-hmm. um so just to kind of re- do you want to recap this episode is there one thing that you want to uh, to leave our listeners with for this yeah month? i think the one thing to leave us with is the understanding of international theory through lenses of power structures and ideals mm-hmm. um, i think those kind of will always lead you back to the three schools of thought and and, and, and how to view um, IR theory or international relations theory. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's important to look at the world through all of these scopes. Um, though you may, I know most people usually tend to lead, lean towards one or the other, but sure. I think it's still important to look at the world through all of these scopes to kind of get a better understanding of how states interact um, mm-hmm. and try to view um, specific interactions through these lenses kind of gives us a little bit more of an insight into how the world kind of operates. Yeah, I think definitely. 
and I hope you all enjoyed this episode. I know I had a ton of fun doing yeah, it. This me is too. something I've wanted to do for a long time. <laughs> I love getting into the weeds of international relations theory and really talking about this on a conceptual basis. Because mm. uh, I, I really think that when you have the basics, and obviously no country or the world doesn't exist in those those four little matrix boxes, yeah. matrices boxes, and there's obviously there's a lot of um, there's a lot of overlap between yeah. realism and liberalism and even constructivism yeah. and I think they all give us good insight into see and to try to predict and mm-hmm. understand why the world it is why the world it is the way that it is mm-hmm. and and I hope that this in some way gives our listeners the ability to, 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 to see that so mm-hmm. uh, thank you Matt again for for yeah, uh, for being course. on I it. It's always a great discussion. Yeah. Um, I love talking about these topics with you. So yeah. you always bring a really good. Um, you always come come with knowledge, and you always come <laughs> with really good uh, with really good points and, and a few jokes too. So once again, appreciate it, and uh, also appreciate the listeners. Um, you guys make all of this possible. And um, once again, you're listening to Tooth Republic. Have a great rest of your month. I'm Jake, and I'm Matt. See you next month. KXRW is brought to you by the generous support from our friends at New Vansterdam. They are the premier cannabis market in the Vancouver area. You can visit at newvansterdam.com for more information regarding their specials and discount days like CBD Sunday and Munchy Monday. New Vansterdam is located in the Heights Shopping Center on the corner of Mill Plain and Andreessen Road. Open 8 a.m. to 11 p.m. 365 days a year. More information available at newvansterdam.com. Support for KXRW comes from David's Trains, buyer and collector of old toy trains, including Lionel, Flyer, Ives, and Marks. He is interested in old transportation-related toys as well as toy trains from the late 1800s to the 1960s. For appraisal, you can call him at 360-576-1602. That's 360-576-1602. Why settle for fast food when you can have fresh food? At 6th Avenue Bistro, the menu emphasizes local ingredients and authentic preparations that highlight the flavors, textures, and colors of the season. More information available about their menu, happy hour, and catering services at 6thAvenueBistro.com. And Ferrars Bistro is their sister restaurant, also located in Vancouver, Washington. With its family-friendly vibe and comfort food with a flair, Ferrars Bistro has attracted both Vancouver locals and out-of-towners since their doors first opened in 2007. More information available at FerrarsBistro.com. That's F-A-R-R-A-R-S Bistro.com. Support for KXRW comes from David's Trains, buyer and collector of old toy trains, including Lionel, Flyer, Ives, and Marks. He is interested in old transportation-related toys as well as toy trains from the late 1800s to the 1960s. For appraisal, you can call him at 360-576-1602. That's 360-576-1602.